This is a recording from the University of Leicester. Right, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the um, second of the uh, Scarman lectures for this academic year. Um, my name's Adrian Becker. I'm the head of criminology. It's my great pleasure this evening to introduce our speaker uh, for this evening, um, Professor Nutt. Um, one of the things that really struck me when I was reading our press release about David was uh, that he'd achieved one of my great goals in life, which was he's been sacked by a Home Secretary. And it's one of these I'm still looking forward to trying to achieve, but I doubt whether I will. Um, so let me just give you a little bit of background, and I'll hand over then to, to, to David to, to give his lecture. Um, David is currently the Edmund J. Safra Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology, which is not easy to say, I have to say, um, and Head of the Centre of Neuro psychopharmacology um, at Imperial College London. He's also currently president of the British Neuroscience Association, chair of the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs, uh, vice president of the European Brain Council and a past president of the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology. Uh, in addition to this, he's a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and Psychiatrists and of the Academy of Medical Sciences. Um, he has published well over 400 um, original research papers and a similar number of reviews and book chapters. And he's, he's produced eight government reports on drugs and over 27 um, books. Previously, he was um, chair of the advisory committee on the misuse of drugs um, until his uh, sacking in 2009. Um, he's also been the president of the British Association of Psychopharmacology and a member of various bodies and panels, including... Uh, the Hefke and NHS Senior Lecture Selection Panel, a member of the MRC Neuroscience Board. Um, he's broadcast very widely. In fact, I, I woke up to you the other morning um, when you were uh, telling me about the, uh, the possibility of having alcohol without hangovers, which I thoroughly look forward to, I have to say. Um, but he's, 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 he's regularly in, in, on radio and, and on, on television. And in 2010, the Times Eureka Science magazine voted him one of the top 100 most important people in the field of, of science. And then this, this month, uh, David was awarded the 2013 John Maddock Prize in recognition of his courage in, and I quote, promoting science and evidence on a matter of public interest despite facing difficult, difficulty and hostility in doing so. So it's my great pleasure to welcome David this evening. He's going to be talking, as you can see, on drugs without hot air. And I welcome him to give his lecture. Thank you very much. Not many people can say neuropsychopharmacology three times without uh, getting it wrong. Well done. So it's a great pleasure to be here for a number of reasons, um, not least of which that uh, Scarman is one of those uh, rare creatures, uh, a thoughtful and honest judge. So it's an honour to be talking in his presence, or at least in, his, uh, in something dedicated to his memory. Um, the, I'll just... Um, while you're finding your seats. I just wanted to point out, on the front page is a book there, David Nutt's uh, Drugs Without the Hot Air. So most of the substance of this talk is in the book. The book is actually very inexpensive. It costs a tenner, and it's a perfect present for your parents <laughs> or your children, depending on how old you are. And uh, all the proceeds go to the charity I've set up, the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs, which is um, probably the only group of people in the world who tell the truth about drugs without having any influence either from government or from uh, any kind of lobby groups. So it's all in a good cause and it'll educate you. 
say a few words. You've heard a lot about who I am. I'm a psychiatrist, as I like to say, with a name like Nut. There weren't many careers in medicine. The men amongst you will think of another one, but the brain's a lot more interesting. Um, I've been a researcher. I went into medicine to do research on the brain. I've been very fortunate. I've worked in the U.S. I used to run the alcohol research ward at the National Institute of Health in the States for two years uh, before I came back, and I've worked in Australia. But most of my work's been in the U.K. I've had four children, and they're now through teenage years, which uh, is a great relief to me because that was an interesting period, not just for them, but for their friends. And it was during that time I really began to understand the real challenges that, uh, that young people have when they are progressing through this kind of wild landscape of drugs and alcohol that we live in today. And I'm an ex-government drugs advisor. And uh, for nine years I chaired the, what you might call the scientific committee of the advisory council, looking at the harms of drugs, developing policies, developing strategies for assessing harms. And because I was so good at that, they promoted me to the full chair of council. Uh, and I survived that less than a year before I was sacked by Alan Johnson. And of course, that's been my real success story, as you pointed out. <laughs> Without that, no one would have heard of me. And uh, it's interesting that obviously the Labour government didn't listen to the words of Margaret Thatcher when she commented on not giving the IRA the oxygen of publicity. They, they obviously thought they knew better, but... Actually, that was one of the problems of that last government. They thought they knew better on lots of things, as I will share with you. Not that they're any, they're any worse than the present lot, but still. <laughs> so there it is, you know, immortalised in this caricature on the front page of this week. Uh, there, there I am, you know, in my laboratory with my white coat, the book of cannabis falling from my hand. Uh, the most important point of the caricature are the scales of justice in the bottom left-hand corner. And the caricaturist has got it right. The debate that was going on was, which is worse, beer and fags on the left or these strange green chemicals in plastic bags on the right? And because that's actually a really difficult uh, equation to, to solve, not least of which because we don't actually know what's in those bags of green chemicals. But anyway, the argument was, which is worse? And I was saying that the evidence we have today clearly shows that the target for intervention should be... Uh, beer and or, or alcohol and also cigarettes, and that the obsession that the media and the government have with new drugs, uh, particularly cannabis and legal highs, is actually uh, not only deceitful, it's a deliberate attempt to detract uh, people's attention from the real problems. Uh, the other remarkable coincidence of that front page, the top left-hand side, you see Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi's crystal meth confession... <laughs> So you've all watched Breaking Bad, haven't you? There you go. And, and he could afford the blue stuff, there's no doubt about that. And, um, and what's remarkable about that is that... It, well, several things are remarkable about his, auto, his biography when he confesses to taking crystal meth. Um, the first is that um, he was, when he was Wimbledon champion, he, was, uh, he, was, he had a urine test and he tested positive for methamphetamine, which is what crystal meth is. And the tennis authorities, like, like most sporting authorities have this rule, which is a kind of arbitrary and unnecessary rule, but if you test positive for one of these drugs, you could be banned for life or a minimum of two years. And that really did present the authorities with enormous challenge. Can you ban your top player in the world for taking a drug which probably didn't do anything to, his, uh, to improve his tennis uh, abilities? And they did what I thought was a very English thing. They decided to ask him to tell the truth. Andre, did you actually take crystal meth? And he said, of course not. Your test must be rubbish, you know, like your tennis players. And, um, 
And they said, oh, good, right, now go away and uh, play some more tennis and never pee into a cup again. Uh, and he went away and he won some more majors. And then, you know, 20 years later, when he gets, he's getting his story out, he comes clean. Now, I don't know why he came clean. I don't know why he came clean, because that guilt was hanging on his shoulders for 20 years. I lied. I suspect it was more likely that his publisher said, well, if we put this as a lead story, you know, we'll sell a few million more copies of the book. And uh, anyway, the fact that he would sell many more copies of the book by confessing to having lies is a really interesting testimony to the, the ambivalence that, that we as a society have. We could destroy his career by banning him because he took a drug which probably wasn't of any relevance to his tennis. Uh, but we're fascinated by the fact he did it and he told the truth about it. So this, this really encapsulates the, the tension. There's an arbitrariness to drugs. There's a savagery to the way we deal with people who take drugs. And yet we're all really secretly fascinated by them. So why was I sacked? Well, I just want to run through a couple of reasons. One was they said I was getting involved in policy. And I said, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be giving you the evidence on which to base your policy. And if the, the law isn't it's supposed to be based on evidence and it's not, then it's an unjust law. They said I was giving mixed messages. I said horse riding was more harmful than ecstasy, which, of course, if you analyse the statistics, is unquestionably true, but, but that was not something that uh, horse riders wanted to hear anyway. Uh, and I said that alcohol was more harmful than cannabis, which is true. And, in fact, the government's chief scientist said, of course, nuts right. But being right doesn't mean that uh, they listen to you. And then they said, loss of confidence in me, which, of course, is that political speak for the fact I wouldn't toe the line. And, uh, and that was it. I had to go because I was continuing to try to argue that the, not only were the drug laws wrong and unjust, but they were actually destructive and doing more harm than good. So I need to get you into a, the sort of mindset to understand what I'm talking about. And we need to get to the real fundamentals. What is a drug? And who should say what a drug is? Well, there are a number of different ways of looking at what a drug is. Um, this is my definition of a drug, um, something a politician once used but now regrets. Um, <laughs> Jackie Smith famously interviewed when she became Home Secretary, was asked a drug question, and her answer was, yes, I smoked cannabis when in Oxford, um, but I didn't enjoy. So at least she admitted she inhaled, <clears throat> but she didn't enjoy. You think, well, why would you bother I haven't ever asked that question, but uh, I think the answer would be because that's what you had to do to get into the Labour Party in Oxford at the time. But I don't know. And then, of course, there's David Cameron when he was asked a question. I did things when young I shouldn't have. We all did. And, of course, that's what's called the Eton We, and uh, otherwise known as the Tory front bench. And, and the great thing about David is that we do know what he did, and I'll show you some of that later on. But just to help you remember, everything he did, the drugs he really liked, all began with the same letter as his surname. And, of course, there are politicians that are really rather clever in the way they deal with this question. This is Boris. It's an outrageous slur. Of course I've taken drugs. And, uh, you know, people, some people suggest he still does, but I don't know if that's true. Now, this is the most important slide that you'll see tonight. This is the slide which really encapsulates the way in which you, are, you have been brainwashed into thinking about alcohol over the years that you have lived. The idea has been very effectively perpetuated that alcohol is actually not a drug. It's actually a lifestyle choice. It's an amusement. It's a pleasure. 
And some people, or certainly some of the drinks industry, want you to believe that the drinking limits are actually not the thresholds of acceptable harm, but actually a target to achieve in order to maximise the health benefits. And so there's been this remarkable and extraordinarily skilful um, dissembling of the truth, which, of course, that alcohol is a drug, and it's actually a drug that's so toxic. If it was discovered today, it could not be licensed. But nevertheless, we still love it. So what would I say? What I would say is the scientific definition of a drug is a chemical which, when taken by a physiological system, produces physiological changes. In the context of today, we're talking about drugs which get into the brain and change the brain and, and usually produce pleasurable effects but can produce harmful effects. And here are two examples of the harms of drugs. There are two deaths from drugs. Now, the one on the right is Leah Betts. This is Leah lying in intensive care. Her parents put this out to warn other young people about the risk of taking ecstasy. How many of you have seen that image? See, it's probably the most famous image of someone dying as a result of um, taking a drug that there's ever been. And uh, Leah's story is really sad because what she did was on her 18th birthday, she took two ecstasy tablets, would have likely have been about 80 milligrams of ecstasy. So that's the dose we use in the Channel 4 program, those of you who saw that. And 80 milligrams of ecstasy is, as some of our volunteers said, that was pathetic. You know, we're not coming back again. So, you know, it's a, it's a low dose and um, wouldn't kill anyone unless you were extraordinarily allergic, which is very rare. But unfortunately for Leah, she didn't understand the harm reduction message. And she started to get anxious uh, on ecstasy. And, and at that time, there had been some deaths of people dancing all night and not drinking water, uh, dehydrating. So she thought she was dehydrating. She drank seven litres of water, and she died of water poisoning, which seven litres of water would probably kill about a third of you in the audience if you did it now. So if she'd not drunk the water, she wouldn't be dead. But her image, and another image of her, went up on billboards all over the country. And uh, the person that sold her to SEC tablets uh, got six months in prison. On the left-hand side is someone you, none of you have ever heard of, Gavin Britton. He was a student at Exeter University in the golf team. And he died after a golf match when his team got together and played a drinking game. And he lost the first round of the drinking game to the forfeit was to drink some more. So he got drunk and he lost the second round, and the forfeit was to drink some more. So he got even more drunk, and then he lost his life. And the people that made him kill himself uh, through peer pressure, they didn't get any punishment. But one hopes that they no longer do that. And one of the things that I'm really campaigning for is that universities should never subsidise any bar which allows drinking games, because drinking games kill hundreds of people a year worldwide. But the point about him is that he's not in the newspapers. Well, he's in the newspaper, but he was on billboards. So he just gets a little corner of the Western Daily Press. And, and the reason for that, of course, is that the drinks industry doesn't want you to know that people have died of alcohol. But they were desperate, desperate for people to know that Leah had died of ecstasy because at that time they were worried that young people would switch from alcohol to ecstasy. And that campaign has been so successful that young people now drink considerably more alcohol than they did then. Uh, hasn't affected our, uh, ecstasy use, I don't think, but it's certainly increased drinking. In fact, there's only one person that you probably know of who has actually died of alcohol poisoning. And this was in a, a very sad case last year. And it was an, it, an example where things could have been done. We could have used this as an example to really educate people about the dangers of alcohol. And that's Amy. Now, most people think that Amy died of drugs 
or some combination of drugs and alcohol. But in fact, she just died of alcohol poisoning. And Amy's story is, is a, a fascinating one in some ways because she, um, she was cured, according to current government targets. She was a recovered alcoholic. She was clean and dry. So she was in recovery. So that was it. She met the target, ticked the box. If people had helped her get into recovery, they would have got paid for that. But like many people who've got drug problems, uh, and alcohol is a drug, that when you relapse, your vulnerability is greater than it was when you were using because you lose tolerance. Uh, uh, the alcohol that killed her was 450 milligrams per cent, five and a half times the driving limit, about a litre of vodka. That wouldn't have killed her when she was drinking regularly, but it killed her because she'd lost tolerance. And that's what happens when many people relapse from abstinence. And that's why abstinence-based policies are, at the very least, challenging because we know they are associated with more deaths. So why wasn't there a campaign to warn everyone against drinking lots of vodka? Because no one would pay for it. The amount of money we spend on advertising against the harms of alcohol is about £80,000 a year, and the drinks industry spends £80 million a year persuading people to drink. If you look at other metrics of harms and drugs. We can look at deaths. These are latest government data. Proportion, number of people who've died as a result of drug use. Uh, tobacco still way above everything else. Here, 80,000. Largely middle-aged people. Alcohol, about 8,000. And they're spread out between young and old, as I'll show you. Opiates, about 1,000. Paracetamol, 200. Cocaine, about 180, amphetamines. And cannabis, ecstasy, methadone, the ones that the newspapers find most fascinating. There's almost no deaths at all. So it's kind of paradoxical, isn't it, that uh, the concern is about things which don't kill you. And what's intriguing is the way in which we have totally ignored one of the most remarkable changes in health outcomes that's probably ever been seen since the Black Death. And that is the death of people from liver disease, uh, which is largely alcohol-driven. So this graph shows what's, what are called standardised mortality rates, the likelihood of any of you in this audience dying from one of those different disorders, disorders of the heart and chest, the brain, cancer, respiratory disorders, or of colours apart from red go down. In the last 40 years, standardised mortality from most illnesses have gone down by 50% or more. And that's because you as a population are getting healthier and because medicine's getting better. Isn't it strange that liver disease has gone exactly the opposite direction and it's gone up five times? And that's largely because of alcohol. So you think a health minister seeing that would say, oh, we should do something about it. But in fact, they don't. They, almost, they kind of actively deny that that is a problem. And then when they're forced to confront it, they say there's nothing we can do about it apart from tell people to drink responsibly. And the reality of that profile of drinking change is it now alcohol is the most common reason for death in men under the age of 50 in the UK. So you'd think if you valued young men, which I kind of do because I've got two children who are men, uh, you might actually think that would be a useful target to try to reduce. But we have no alcohol policy worth considering. Really. Why are they dying so young? And that's because people drink from a very early age. 
And these are amazing statistics, because they go back, you can see, to 1995. And they look at the proportion of 15-year-olds who are drunk, i.e. intoxicated to a point where they're at risk, at least once a month. And you can see it's half. And you see it's been half for 17 years. And that, mass, that early onset of heavy drinking not only leads to problems like violence and uh, uh, unprotected sex and chlamydia, etc., but it also leads to the beginnings of brain and liver damage. So this is the drug problem in Britain today. It's 15-year-olds poisoning themselves at least once a month. That is the problem. Everything else is trivial in comparison. And that's one of the reasons when we looked at the overall harms of drugs, we produced this, a graph which turned out to have alcohol as the most harmful drug in the UK. And the coloured bars are very uh, illustrative because the, you see that alcohol is the number one harmful drug because of the big red bar. And the big red bar is the harm of alcohol to society, people like you and me. And that is big because alcohol is involved in about half of all traffic accidents, more than half of all burglaries, the vast majority of domestic violence, a lot of child abuse. And it costs the country $3 billion a year in terms of health care costs and $6 billion a year in terms of policing alcohol-related disorder. So the average taxpayer spends £1,000 of their tax money simply services the way we treat alcohol today, which is pretty tough if you don't drink. Alcohol is not the most dangerous drug to the user. The blue bars, you'll see the ones next to it, heroin, crack, crystal meth, they've got bigger blue bars because they're more harmful to the user. But the vast penetration of alcohol into society is why it is so uh, harmful overall. And that's where we should be targeting our efforts to reduce this enormous cost, this 30 billion a year cost of alcohol to UK society. Why is it such a problem? Why is it a growing problem? Well, this graph uh, has two lines. The red line is the average consumption by a Brit going back to 19... What is it? That starts at 1958, doesn't it? And you can see that consumption has started to rise in the 50s, and it continued to rise up to 1970, 76, 78. And that rise uh, from the 60s to 70s was um, largely facilitated by the relaxation of the licensing laws. So when I was a student, you had to go to a, a, a place called, it was called a bar, and, and had a license to serve you this drug. So there was an acceptance that this was something that was potentially harmful and could change the way you thought. So they're supposedly protected by having a license. And then the ability of shops to sell alcohol led to the first significant rise in consumption. And then things flattened out with the rave scene, etc., and, and the advent of cannabis, things flattened out. And then the drinks industry decided to increase its marketing, and it brought in two things. It brought in Arco Pops and these super-strength lagers. And the second surge, the little peak in the 2000s, has been uh, because of those. And the blue lines are as far as the data we have, going back to the 19... Let's come back to the 1980s. That's the affordability of alcohol. And you can see that the affordability of alcohol has actually um, halved. So alcohol is now effectively twice as affordable as it was back in 1980. So that's another reason people drink a lot, because it's become significantly cheaper. And the red bars show the number of hospital admissions and 
They doubled in that decade from the 90s to the 2000s. And in the 2000s, the latest data we have, which is 2009, show over a million hospital uh, admissions related to alcohol. And you contrast that with stimulants like ecstasy, it's 2,000, and cannabis, 700. So alcohol is far and away the greatest problem and, you know, in hospitals. And, and it's actually quite dangerous to be ill on a Friday night because if you go to oh, uh, uh, any hospital, A&E in this country on a Friday night, you know, you're quite likely to be assaulted by the various drunk people who are there trying to see help. And despite all that, despite this unequivocal evidence and the pressure from all the doctors' groups, the government's decided it wouldn't even progress a relatively trivial, uh, but nevertheless would have been meaningful intervention of minimum pricing. Uh, because the drinks industry are so terrified that any rational action on alcohol will bring down the whole edifice of the false edifice of, of its safety, that they oppose it to a point of hysteria. And they won. So that's alcohol. I want to move on to the other popular drug, which is cannabis. There's Alan Johnson, if you don't remember him. He was the Home Secretary who sacked me. I'm the guy with the moustache and the spliff. And um, it wasn't a Class A drug, but it was a Class A row. And, uh, so let's look at what's going on with cannabis. Well, these are the data we presented to the government in uh, 2009 when we argued that cannabis should stay as Class C. And we said, look, over the 40 years where those alcohol deaths have gone up five times and consumption had gone up less than twice, there's been a 20-fold increase in the number of people using cannabis. So you might think that would actually translate into some kind of signal of harm if cannabis was harmful. Now, I showed you there was no, no signal in terms of deaths. So what else could cannabis be causing harm for? Well, it actually doesn't cause much harm at all, but the government was so obsessed with being hard on drugs and so determined to find an excuse to reclassify cannabis that it cottoned on to this idea that it might cause schizophrenia. And so we said, okay, well, what's the best database on schizophrenia and psychosis in the country? Well, that's the MRC GP database. So we went through that, and we dug out the data going back from the mid-'90s when the rise was starting. Uh, and we think if there was any effect of cannabis on psychosis, which are the top two lines, or schizophrenia, the bottom two lines, you, know, you might have seen it over that period. And in fact, if anything, they're both going down. And in fact, the truth is, in all the Western countries where that massive increase in cannabis use has been seen, uh, there's no increase in schizophrenia. It's, uh, it was a very convenient uh, story to tell, but it was not true. And if you believe the one piece of data, the Swedish 1957 cohort of uh, their soldiers' data, if you believe that, which you know, could be true, I mean, it, you, know, you can't be replicated, but anyway, let's assume that there is some signal in the rest of us, like the Swedes, then you've got to stop 5,000 young men or 7,000 young women from ever smoking cannabis to stop uh, one case of schizophrenia. Now, that is actually not, in any sane world, a public health policy. You could not build a policy on those numbers. Uh, and so there was no point in reclassifying. That was the justification for reclassifying. However, Jackie Smith said, we're, not, we're going to reclassify to be based on public perception and policing priorities. And that does great with someone like me, who's, you know, my, my, my job is to talk about evidence, not to talk about uh, perception and policies. And in fact, it was even worse than that, because two-thirds of the general public did not want it reclassified. 
but it wasn't the right kind of public. It was what the Daily Mail wanted, which was what that government was prepared to, only prepared to listen to. What does Class B mean? Well, Class B means that you can go to prison for five years for possession, you can get 14 years for supply, and also, kind of, kind of, well, the last government, I don't know if you all know this, but the last government brought in more laws than any government in history. Most of them rather um, not very useful, and some of them very destructive, and they made uh, pretty much all offences arrestable. So now, if you are stopped and you've got a trace of cannabis in your pocket, the police can take you to a cell, hold you for 24 hours, go and search your home, and if they can find any way of persuading a judge that you might be dealing, they can then freeze your assets under the Proceeds of Crime Act. And they do that a lot. And what, particularly what they do is they do it to people who are providing their partners with medicinal cannabis. And this is a systematic way of terrifying people and actually destroying uh, a lot of you know, family life because once your assets are frozen, you are in real shtuck. Even if you win the case, you've got months and months without credit cards, without being able to pay your mortgage, etc. So they do this under the Misuse of Drugs Act. And I want to say a little bit about the Misuse of Drugs Act because it was actually originally a very good piece of legislation. It was brought in by the Home Secretary, <laughs> Jim Callaghan, back in the 70s. And he brought it in because he knew that you could not trust politicians to be rational and honest about drugs. That he knew they would always try to score political points. They would always ratchet up the, uh, the attacks on drugs in order to appear stronger, tougher, harder than the opposition. And he said, we can't be trusted. And in fact, the interesting, interesting thing about the Misuse of Drugs Act, because it, it preceded the um, decision by Gordon Brown, and maybe the one good thing he did as a, uh, a, uh, a chancellor was to take decision-making about interest rates out of Parliament for the same reasons. It's destabilising. So interest rates are sorted out by the Bank of England, and 20 years before, drugs were supposed to be sorted out by the ACMD. Uh, and it worked. It worked reasonably well until, actually, the last Labour government. Um, the way it works is there are classes, class A, B, and C, and the classes tell you the penalties. I showed you the penalties for cannabis, class B. But also they have schedules. Schedule, the green is schedule 2, 3, and 4, which are medicines, and then there's the, the other colours of schedule 1 drugs, some of which have been medicines, some of which are not medicines and never will be. So that classes are about what happens to you if you're found in possession. The schedules are about doctors using them. Uh, this is uh, not Meryl Streep. This is a woman called Margaret Thatcher. And um, <coughs> Margaret Thatcher was, as you know, a prime minister who was of the right-wing persuasion. And in the uh, late 80s, the ACMD went to her and said, to her, we, there's an epidemic of AIDS emerging around the world. And it's going to come to Britain through intravenous drug users. So we've got to do something about it. And she said, well, what? And they said, well, you've got to do two things. You've got to do needle exchange, and you've got to do opiate substitution therapy. And she said, well, you know, Tories don't do needle exchange. And they said, well, you've got to think about your legacy. What do you want to be remembered as? Do you want to be remembered as the prime minister that gave us AIDS or the prime minister that did needle exchange? And they won't remember that. So she said, ah, oh, oh. And she changed. She said, oh, you're the experts, go ahead, do needle exchange. And Britain became an exemplar to the world of how a rational policy will reduce the spread of AIDS. And we had one of the lowest uh, 
uh, prevalences of AIDS in Europe, we became a, a model of how to do it right. And that was maybe the only time in her life she turned, but she turned because she listened to the scientific evidence. Since then, drugs have become more political. And this shows the changes of drugs in the Misuse of Drugs Act over the last 10 years. And you see the arrows show the direction of change. And you'll see one remarkable thing, that all the solid arrows go in one direction with the exception of the arrow from cannabis, where cannabis went from B to C uh, back in 2004. You'll also see a dotted arrow of MDMA, which is the recommendation we made to reduce, to move MDMA from A to B um, back in 2009. Uh, but all the others go in one direction, and that's to make the things more illegal or more penalised. In fact, the only drug that's ever had its position, what you might call rationally changed in the Act in the 40 years, is cannabis. And that created such hysteria that three Home Secretaries banged on our heads to get us to reclassify it. Uh, and every time we said there's no reason to, they got very angry, and, um, and eventually they got angry enough to sack the messenger. But the very interesting arrow, which you might see there, you might think, well, hang on, what about that big blue arrow? The blue arrows are against our advice. And there's a big, long blue arrow at the bottom over mushrooms. And, and psilocybin mushrooms were legal in this country until 2004, and, uh, and then people started to realise you could dry them and freeze-dry them, and they were beginning to be sold in head shops in Camden. And the Daily Mail went hysterical. And they goaded the Tories to goad the Labour Party to do something about it. And uh, we heard that the, the, the Prime Minister was interested in making them controlled. And we said to him, well, you do realise that the Misuse of Drugs Act is a statutory instrument, which means... You can't do anything without consulting us, otherwise you're breaking the law, which I guess by that point he decided didn't matter anyway, but we'll come to that in a second. And, uh, and then one evening, I think it was a Tuesday evening, got an email from the Cabinet Office saying, we're going to have a vote on the mushrooms on Thursday. What do you think? And we said, no, you know, this is irresponsible. You can't expect us to come up with a proper harm assessment of a, a drug in 36 hours, so... You know, if you're going to do it, go and do it, but realise you know, what you're doing is breaking the law. And they did, and they made mushrooms, which were legal. They made them a Class A drug uh, overnight. And at that point, we all began to think, this is completely ridiculous. How can mushrooms be remotely in the same class as crack cocaine? And, and it really it was a final nail in the coffin of the misuse of drugs, having any meaning. Because all governments want to do is put things in and make them... They'd like them all to be Class A. In fact, they'd like an A-plus if they could. <laughs> so why did, why did we get there? Why was Blair so fascinated by mushrooms? Well, it goes back, goes back to the Iraq War. And, um, and the Iraq War... There were two things about the Iraq War. The first was, of course, it, it was a war that you could fight without any evidence whatsoever. So you could make up the reason for fighting and then fight... Um, and uh, the second thing is the Iraq War meant that Blair and Bush spent a lot of time together. And uh, Bush and the Americans have been banging on continuously to, to us, the ACMD, repeatedly asking us to follow their policies. And we would repeatedly say, you know, why should we when your policies are ridiculous and harmful? Uh, but eventually Blair got this uh, idea in his head that he could and should wage a war on drugs. And he set up a war cabinet 
independent of the ACMD, an unminuted a group of experts in defense, uh, customs, police. He had his little war cabinet to fight a war on drugs. And he thought he could win the war on drugs like Bush was winning the war on drugs or like he was winning the war in Iraq. And the first salvo in that war was the mushrooms. That was when it all started. We're going to sort out you hippies taking mushrooms. But interesting thing about war is that war does distort thinking. And there are, there are two very powerful axioms about war. And the first is that the first casualty of war is the truth. And in terms of the drug war, that is a fact. Mushrooms and cannabis are very dangerous. That's why they're, uh, they're trying to control them. But that's a lie. You know, because they're not very dangerous at all. In fact, you know, their effects are trivial. And then the second axiom, once at war, all reason is treason. And, and that, I, in hindsight, I realised that's why I was sacked. Because continuing to argue that the war was wrong and dishonest was actually seen as treason. The only good news is that they didn't uh, put me in the tower or cut my head off, but I'm sure they would have wanted to. And I want to take a little bit more about cannabis because we know about half of young people cannabis. At this university, it's about 65% from the latest data we have. Very few experience health harm. There's very little harm to society. And the current government policy criminalizes people who will not be harmed by the drug. And the criminal record is worse in most cases than what the drug would do because it ruins future prospects. Uh, there'll be no impact on health. And also, because we fight this war on cannabis, we, they find it impossible to be sensible about cannabis as a medicine. So I would say, is this just? Well, you know, I don't think you need to work out what I feel. Of course, it's completely unjust. It's ridiculous. But it happened. And here's a sad indictment of the last government. Here you see the ince- what happens if you incentivize. If you incentivize the police to arrest people for cannabis possession, they do it. They were incentivized. It became a target. And the number of arrests went up from 88,000 a year in 2004 to, to, to 158,000 in 2007. I mean, it is the easiest conviction to make. In London, you just walk into a park, and if there's a black guy, search him, you'll find something which you can say is cannabis, even if it's not. So then you've done it. You know, you've got your... and, and this was truly a bizarre and, and reprehensible policy because we now have a million young people with criminal oh, cannabis convictions. And they're an underclass because you know, they won't be going to medicine or the civil service or politics and serve no purpose other than to appease the people who like to punish people. And, of course, it's racist because it's mass, massive over-representation of, of young black and Asian people. And that's one of the reasons there was so, such a lot of hostility in London when we had the riots, because they were trying to enforce this more recently. And what's strange is how, back, how, much, how far backwards we've gone in a century. So there you have her, the young Queen Victoria, arguably the most powerful woman in the history of the world's uh, before Kate Middleton, and um, uh, Empress of India, where we grew the cannabis and sold it to the Indians to make money. Uh, and she liked cannabis. She, was, she used it regularly. Her doctor prescribed it for period pains, for childbirth pains. And I sometimes think, you know, maybe the reason she had so many children was because she used it recreationally as well, but I, I don't have any evidence of that. Um, and it was a medicine in this country until it, it got banned. And it got banned because two GPs 
were prescribing it and asking people, suggesting that people, rather than drink it as a tincture, would sprinkle it onto their onto tobacco and smoke it. And this was the absurdity that Callaghan wanted to stop with the Misuse of Drugs Act, because it's, rather than just stop the doctors prescribing, they banned the drug. Why? Because Parliament wanted to show it was strong, so they banned the drug. So Queen Victoria couldn't have benefited, and. This is where we are now. This is a true story. I get many emails like this on a regular basis. So here we have a teacher with multiple sclerosis in a wheelchair. She uses cannabis. It's the only thing that provides relief. And three times the police have smashed her front door down in dawn raids in the past few years. And, of course, that's what war allows you to do. War allows the police to fight innocent and um, ill people. If they'd knocked on the door, she'd have opened it. She couldn't jump out the window. But because it's a war... It empowers them to be violent. And now, if she gets convicted again, she will go to prison. The law currently says you have to do that after your th- on your fourth conviction. So they control her life. She still uses because it's the only thing that gives her relief. But her, you know, her life is in the, essentially in the grip of the police who choose to investigate. And this is outrageous. I mean, no, no one could possibly think that that is a proportionate response to the use of a drug to deal with pain. And, of course, these are, the exa- these are the examples which, in America, have led most no, 17 or 18 states now to make medicinal cannabis legal because we don't want this. Most sane people do not want to have a war waged on people who are, have already got troubles enough with illnesses like multiple sclerosis. In Britain, until 2005, you could, however, use the defence of necessity. This is a defence which is enshrined in English common law which says essentially that if you, have to do, if you have to break the law to save your life or to prevent serious harm coming to yourself, you can plead this defence. And in 2005, the law lords, they outlawed it, but just for cannabis. So you can still say, I need the crack cocaine for my backache or I need the mushrooms for my cluster headaches. But you cannot... So that means if you're caught with cannabis... You are convicted. There's no point in going to court. Magistrates hate this because they have to convict every single person that goes to court. So we have a million convictions. But it's not just that they did it. It's the fact that they did it having been pressured by the government. And I want to tell you this story because those of you who are interested in criminology will find that this is probably the most reprehensible example of the judiciary having being spineless, that I certainly come across. So here are the three law lords who came up with this defense, this abolition of this century-old defense of necessity. Bingham, Carswell, and Roger. They said, why did they do it? They were influenced by the government's refusal to relax legislation. So the government had arbitrarily turned down, or for political reasons, turned down the House of Lords review on cannabis uh, for medicine. And so they said, okay, well, if the government doesn't like cannabis, we don't like cannabis. So, so, so much for the independent judiciary. But what's worse is that just before he was, well, when he was made a law lord, actually, he was interviewed for the spectator by Boris Johnson, who said, would you legalize cannabis? And Bingham said, yes, absolutely. It's stupid having a law which isn't doing what it's there for. And three years later, he's denying the right of people to use cannabis medicinally when it's the only thing they've got. And if you, you know, can you, if, if, 
I hope there's not a, not a worse example of the lack of judicial integrity than that. And it really, this is a law that really should be overturned as soon as possible. And the good news is we have another solution. It's called the Eaton solution. Eaton being a, a school near London. And um, here's the two old Etonians, David Cameron and Josh Ashton. And these were together at Eton. And uh, they were caught smoking cannabis. And they used to go into London to get reggae records, and they'd come back with some other stuff in the, in the bags with the, some vinyls. And interestingly, because he'd only smoked and he'd not sold the drugs, Cameron was not thrown out. He was fined. He was uh, gated, which meant he couldn't go to Betty's tea shop on Saturdays in Windsor. And he was given a Georgic, which is copying out hundreds of lines of Latin. Now, he won't tell us what the lines were, but I think they're this. Uh, at least I hope they're this. <laughs> And I think this is actually an extraordinarily rational approach to finding a schoolboy smoking cannabis. Make him write out lots of lines. Because if you do something else, if you kick him out, all sorts of strange things happen. So four, seven boys were expelled, five were suspended, and four were gated. And I haven't been able to track down what happened to most of them, but I do know about Astor. So here is an even more privileged uh, boy than, than Cameron. And like Pretty much anyone who's kicked out of school for a drugs offence, he, what else is there to do but do more drugs? And he's had a very, very problematic subsequent life with multiple drug convictions. So the worst thing you can do to a schoolboy is expel them for taking drugs. Cameron, the wise headmaster, kept him going. And he said he went from being the most difficult boy I've ever taught to, as you know, David C., David Cannabis, as we call him, um, the progressive MP. And, um, and he was quite progressive. He was very progressive. When Howard, the Home Secretary, decided that he didn't like, the Daily Mail didn't like raves, he was going to stop raves, Cameron disagreed, not least because his girlfriend at the time was going to them. But, uh, but it was a rush, you know, banning raves was a pretty stupid thing to do. And he was quite sensible. On the Home Affairs Select Committee, he said, exercise should be Class B. In fact, he said that the drug laws were completely ridiculous and should be fully revised in the 2004 Home Affairs Select Committee report, which he co-authored. But then it all changed. And when he started to shorten his name to Dave, he changed his views, and he retracted his views on ecstasy the day after he was made head leader of the Tory party. And now he's bringing in a bill, the, dr the drugs bill, which we're fighting hard, is based part of the bill says that... Addiction is not an illness, it's a lifestyle choice. So all you've got to do is stop and you're cured. And that is a cynical ploy to avoid spending money on health care for people with addiction. And, and I know the reason why they do that, because they, there is a real problem with them understanding what it's like to be an addict. And, and, and it's because of their lifestyle. So on the top left, that's called a lifestyle choice. That's If you're rich enough, you can join the Bullingdon Club. Uh, it costs about £5,000 to buy the uniform which lasts about one dinner. Uh, there's Cameron, there's Boris, and a few of the others standing on the uh, college steps in Oxford. These people were able to take large amounts of drugs, drink vast amount of money, cause huge amount of damage, and pay off the police and uh, the people whose property they damaged with large amounts of money. And then they go into become political advisors, where they, we think they might continue that behaviour, and then they become politicians, where they, most of them stop... 
And because they can stop without a problem, they think, well, it was a lifestyle choice. You know, when I was young, I took drugs. Now I'm old, I don't. But the reality is that many young people, when they start using drugs, end up becoming addiction, ad- addicts. So addiction is not a lifestyle choice, and it shouldn't be treated as such. Now, I've made a few references to the media through this talk, and the media have a really malign role to play in all the debate about drugs. And, and this is a, an, a beautiful example of how they distort our thinking. So the PhD done by Alistair Forsyth, he looked at every single coroner's report in Scotland in the 1990s, and he looked to see, he found every one in which a drug other than alcohol was present at the time of death. And then he went through all the newspapers to see which of them reported the death. He found 2,255 deaths, 546 reports, and one in four got reported. And then he asked the question, is there any variation in the likelihood of reporting a drug death? Well, it was quite remarkable. Um, None of the aspirin deaths were reported. Only one of the 265 paracetamol deaths were reported, even though all those people will have died of paracetamol. Tomazepam, 1 in 15. Morphine, 1 in 72. Now, amphetamines, there were very few deaths, but 1 in 3 were reported. So maybe because they're rarer, they're more interesting. Cocaine, 1 in 8. Heroin, 1 in 5. Methadone, 1 in 16. But, of course, the one that was always reported was ecstasy. And the reason people people think ecstasy is dangerous, because that's all they read about in the newspapers. But paracetamol is killing considerably more, maybe 10 times, maybe 20 times more people than ecstasy every year. But the media want you to be scared of ecstasy for reasons we don't really understand. I think it's the name. I think it was called grunge. They wouldn't give a damn. And that was then. That was the 1990s. This is now. The, the cycle repeats itself. I just want to show you, this is, share with you this most remarkable phone conversation I had. I was actually in a taxi. I was in Barcelona going to give a lecture and I was rung up by CNN. And they said, where's Scunthorpe? <laughs> you can, uh, and I'd done an interview with them on Mephedrone um, a couple of days before, so I had my phone now. I said, why do you want to go to Scunthorpe? And he said, ah, so the, uh, the, the Humberside police have called an international press conference to tell the world that two young men have died from taking Mephedrone, MCAT. <laughs> so that's, that's, kind of, that's almost impossible because you know, we know about 400,000 young Israelis have been using it for the last two years and none have died. However, drive up the M1, four hours, turn right. And I don't know if they made it, but if they had made it, they would have heard Nick's dad. So there's Nick, the younger lad. Who's, and his dad in red said this, I don't want him to be labelled a druggie because he wasn't. He was on a night out with friends enjoying himself, a normal caring, hard-working lad. Now, everything that Nick's dad said is true, but for the one word I've put in bold, because he was a druggie. He was an alcohol druggie. He'd gone out, it was a Sunday night, they'd been out drinking from about eight at night to two in the morning, about six different bars, and they were so drunk that they didn't even know what they were taking. And in fact, they didn't take methadone, they took methadone. But, and the police had absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that they take a methadone. But what a great way of getting CNN to Scunthorpe. They've never been there before or since. <laughs> and that's it. The police love to be engaged in this kind of cutting-edge, save-the-world type approach. And that this was the complete media clamour to get the drug banned. And after that, it was banned, even though 
to our knowledge, at the time it was banned, it never killed anyone. Um, and here is an example of the kind of political distortion that politicians make. When, when, no, in, when no methadone was present, the Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, said the unanimous recommendation to ban the drug, da, 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 was based on painstaking evidence. Now, I don't know what painstaking means, but to me it means that you've done a lot of work. Here's the evidence. They didn't even bother. Didn't even bother to find out whether it had a pharmacology. Question marks. Question. I have to say, you know, I thought this was an insult to, to the scientific community. We could have given it to a postdoc in one of 50 labs in the country, and they could have given you those data within a week. But they cannot be bothered because they don't want evidence to get in the way of policy making, because it means that smart asses like me might hold them to it. And one of the interesting things about methadrone was that it turned out to have some paradoxical benefits. Uh, I'll tell you about the cocaine deaths in a minute. But it also, a lot fewer soldiers were drummed out of the army because soldiers switched from using cocaine, which they test for, to methadrone, which they don't. So that saved a lot of careers. Uh, it was £600,000 import duty. Since then, well, price has gone up about threefold. We don't yet have the data. I'm really waiting for the data in relation to cocaine and armies, but they're, they're being coy at releasing that. But here's the cocaine data. So I started working for the government in 2000, and I, you know, we were continually being asked to do something about this rising death toll from cocaine. And we couldn't really think of what to do. But then the free market came along, the internet came along, and people switched from rubbish cocaine that was killing them to clean methadrone, which wasn't. And look, you know, you got a 40% reduction in cocaine deaths just because people can take some of it that's less toxic. So this is a fantastic harm reduction message. <laughs> if I'd achieved that, you know, I could have got the Nobel Prize. But, but as I say, the internet achieved it. Remarkable. And one of the interesting effects of banning drugs is that often more harmful drugs emerge. And we've seen this. We've seen this years ago. But here's a great example. So you ban methadrone, and you get naphrone, which is much more toxic. You ban naphrone, you get PMMA. And PMMA and PMA are killing people all over the country. <laughs> if they hadn't banned methadrone, we, people would not be using those other drugs, almost certainly. But this, this, work, this idea, this common phenomenon, that if you ban something, something worse comes along. But there's another... Even worse side than that. Okay, so you don't have to, you don't have to take drugs if you don't want to. You don't, there's no, no one forcing young people to entertain themselves with drugs. But if you're ill, you do need drugs. And the problem we have is that the laws in this country now are so restrictive of the use of drugs that all the potential medical advances that could emerge from the use of these drugs are effectively censored by the drug laws. So there's loads of ways in which different illegal drugs could be useful. These are all credible medical benefits of these drugs. And the funny thing was about methadrone was actually it was being developed as a treatment for addiction before it got banned. There's lots of ways. And my view is that this, the banning of these drugs is actually the censorship. It's, not, it's an inadvertent censorship. We're trying to stop kids harming themselves and we're not succeeding, but we are seriously hampering scientific research. And I think that is... This is the worst example of research censorship since the Catholic Church banned the telescope back in 1616. Now, they didn't want people to know that the Earth was not the centre of the universe. So they banned the writings of Copernicus for 150 years. And I can't think of a worse example of research censorship since that. 
and I've given this talk a few times now and no one has challenged me. I, I, it's appalling that the therapeutic potential of those drugs will, is not being realised and will never be realised while we take this simplistic attitude of just let's ban it and forget about it. If you want to read more about it, here's a review I wrote. Um, uh, this is actually there's just an interesting uh, history to this. This review, Nature, came out in June. This emerged from a talk I gave in Leicester. I gave a skeptics in the pub talk in Leicester. Were any of you there? Yeah. That at that talk was one of the writers for Nature Reviews, and she came up to me after and said, "That is amazing. Write that up." And I wrote that up and got it published. And you know, so this is the the piece that really argues the case for irrational drug laws. At least let scientists use them. It, you know, I mean, the drug laws don't discriminate between a picogram, which I might want, and a kilo, which a dealer might want. We have to, I have to have a licence to hold a sub-effective therapeutic whatever dose of any of those drugs. And it costs a lot of money, and it wastes a lot of time. And there are many, many other sensible things we can do. I've listed them here. I, I don't want to go through them all, but... It's not just a question of banging on that the government are rubbish. There are lots of creative, sensible things we can do that will, would actually allow the appropriate kind of control, the appropriate harm regulation of drugs. And the most interesting one, perhaps, is the bottom but one, the Class D category. So some of you may know that New Zealand now has decided it cannot win the war on drugs. So it's, going to cha it's changed its whole perception now so that basically um, individuals or companies will be able to sell legal highs provided they show they're safe. So this is putting the onus of, of safety onto the, to the person who makes them. And this is a true revolution in the way we think, and it's going to be fascinating to see how that pans out. And hopefully it'll pan out very well, and maybe eventually we can catch up with one of our former colonies and get on the same page. So I want to finish now. I want to just remind you of this... Principle from John Stuart Mill. In a freedom-loving society, no conduct by rational adults should be criminalised unless it's harmful to others. And all the years I went worked in government, I kind of thought that this was the underpinning principle of how we made laws in this country. Sadly, I was wrong. Uh, but what we should do now is really try to hold our politicians to this account because it's unquestionably you know, the, the appropriate and, and necessary way in which we view individual liberty and, uh, and choice. And we need more political integrity. Here's the drugs minister, who I work with. And while drugs minister, he just said, non. And as soon as he's out of office, he says, I got it all wrong. And we know, we know that they all think like him. They all know that the approach, well, maybe not Theresa May, but, but most, most sensible politicians do know that this is a failed policy. They just don't have the courage to do anything about it until they leave office. So I finish now, um, as again, by the book. It's got all of it in there, or most of it, and it's, it's, it's helping the cause of the independent scientific community. Thank you very much. This is a recording from the University of Leicester. For more information, please visit le.ac.uk.